Welcome to the DTB podcast for March 2015, volume 53, number three. My name is David Fizakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. I'm James Cave, I'm editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month highlights the findings from the 2013 health survey in England, which has been much reported. And I guess particular focus that we're interested in is on the use of prescription medicines. So, James, what what did the survey report? Yes, I mean, I think uh, it probably won't come as a surprise to many GPs, certainly, that actually about 50% of women and around 40% of men reported taking at least one prescription drug in the week of the survey. So not a huge surprise that, that given all the emphasis on uh, guidance and guidelines that people are taking taking medicines, any, if you drill down into the data, any particular aspects of it that, that do raise some questions or are of particular interest? Yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, it's no surprise to know that 30% of those drugs were cardiovascular ones. You know, we all know the rise and rise of uh, statin use uh, for lipid lowering um, is is obviously something which is making perhaps a big impact on um, cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. I think the surprising thing perhaps was that 11% of women and 6% of men reported taking antidepressants. Now, this is a self-reporting. The results are self-reported from individuals who have completed the questionnaire. So some caveats around what it might mean. But is that a cause for concern that so many people are taking antidepressants? Well, I suppose the issue there is that the evidence for antidepressants are, are come from really studies that have looked at the severer or the moderate to severe end of depression. So I suppose it's worrying... Uh, either that means that 11% of women have had serious depression or it perhaps means that there's overdiagnosis and overtreatment going on. And, uh, you know, I think we all recognise that uh, for GPs sometimes there isn't an alternative at the moment for prescribing uh, to patients who perhaps could do well with CBT or other talking-type therapies. Um, and it would be interesting to see whether this survey, when it's next done, shows any change in that because obviously there has been a a rollout of talking therapies uh, nationally over the last few years. But overall, some warning signs that perhaps, again, lots of caveats around it, but perhaps we're relying too much on pharmacological intervention? Well, I think this is this is the issue, isn't it? I think sometimes um, we forget the lifestyle, and I think we're becoming increasingly a protocol-driven medical system and I think sometimes that means that we tend to get into a trigger happy situation where we are moving towards therapeutic manoeuvres rather than remembering that sometimes uh, lifestyle changes are far more beneficial in the long term. Okay thank you very much. And the first main article this month looking at a new drug for schizophrenia, lurazidone. Um, Now one of the concerns uh, that's been about for some time in the certainly in the care of people with schizophrenia, is that along with their mental health, their physical health often suffers and people do quite badly in terms of their physical outcomes. So this new oral second-generation antipsychotic has been launched with claims to have negligible effects on weight and some cardiovascular parameters. So let's look at the evidence for its effectiveness and see whether some of this is borne out. What did we find in terms of management of the schizophrenia? 
So um, we've got uh, a series of quite short studies looking at its effect on the acute management of schizophrenia and it does seem to be, as you might expect, uh, considerably better than placebo in the management of acute schizophrenia. That was measuring symptoms. That's right. So positive and negative symptoms and seeing how it did compared with placebo and it does something over short term. Yeah. Longer term studies? So we've just got about two studies here which have looked at the long term efficacy of this drug over about 12 months and it's compared it with such drugs like quetiapine. There's some concerns from the EMA that there may have been some bias and lorazidine hasn't been shown to be non-inferior to risperidone. So they are conducting further uh, studies to look into that. So we've got something very short term about symptom improvement, something saying that non-inferior to quetiapine in terms of prevention of relapse in longer term studies, but still some concerns over how good the evidence is. So the key issue then becomes adverse effects. What did it achieve in terms of lipids, glucose, HbA1c and weight gain? So we've got the short-term study, six weeks, which showed that it was um, really better than risperidone in that respect and probably equivalent to uh, quetiapine. So with regard to its effect on blood lipids, glucose and HbA1c, there were limited effect on those, which obviously is a good thing compared to some of the other second generation drugs that have been used but remember this is only a six week study so it's difficult to know long term where that's going so you know positive response but some concern about that and the other interesting thing about this drug looking at the studies was that there was quite a significant dropout rate in the patients taking this drug which indicates that perhaps some of the side effects the adverse events that it caused things like akathisia and uh, sedation perhaps were an issue for some patients taking these drugs. So again, it's back to this juggling act. The one set of adverse effects which might affect people's physical health look as though on short-term studies it might be better, but in terms of adverse effects that they might be concerned about in terms of movement disorders or other issues such as that, then it may be worse. Well, this is it. And there's quite an interesting meta-analysis that they've done where they use direct and indirect comparisons of 15 antipsychotics, including lorazidone. And that was interesting because lorazidone came third worst for all-cause discontinuation rates. And it was uh, one of the least well-tolerated in view of extrapyramidal effects as well. And yet it was ranked second last for change in symptoms as well. So this is a drug that you know, is not on balance demonstrating it's got anything particularly to offer apart from perhaps these lipid, glucose and HbA1c changes to to really give it a, a reason to be used. So it feels as though if you're struggling with every other drug option for these group of patients, it's worth considering, but people need to balance the two types of adverse effect. Precisely. Okay, thank you very much. And our last article this month looks at drug shortages. Not a new problem, but one that regularly occurs. Constantly read about drugs going out of stock or not being available. What's your experience in general practice? I think most GPs would agree with me that this has become a really major issue for us now. I mean, currently there are a number of drugs from 
topical steroid creams to drops, antibiotic drops, particularly combination antibiotic drops for ear infections, which you really cannot get hold of at all at the moment. We last year had the whole Valsartan issue over the whole of March and April and most of May as well. And so this has now become almost a daily occurrence. And this is very different from how the landscape felt, say, decade ago or even two where it was really very unusual for there to be any sort of drug shortage and if there was there was usually a letter from the CMO or from someone advising you on the actions to be taken in such a situation where you couldn't get hold of a drug. So are you getting much warning? There's usually no warning at all currently so usually you know you'll just find that either the pharmacist simply tells you that they're unable to get hold of it and you contact the wholesalers and they'll just say it's out of stock and they're not sure when you know the manufacturer delay is the term they use and you just don't know when that's going to happen. And nothing in place to suggest what alternative options you've got? None at all. I mean, it took, uh, with Valsartan, it must have taken six weeks before we had a letter from, I think it was Public Health England, advising us of sort of the action you should take in that situation. So I think this is difficult. I think uh, whilst I don't think there's been any major impact on health as a result of this problem yet, it just makes you wonder whether the whole drug supply chain is as robust as perhaps it should be. So what we've tried to do in the article is is look at some of the reasons why shortages occur and broken them down into kind of manufacturing issues, regulatory issues, problems when drugs are discontinued for all sorts of reasons, lack of profitability or to concentrate on other products. And then there's that grey area of trading and whether drugs are being sent abroad when they should be used in, in this country. And also looking at the flip side, so what's being done about it, Department of Health done lots of work with manufacturers, generics and uh, the ABPI to try and put guidance in place to mitigate against some of these these problems. But still, it's an issue. What was interesting looking at the work behind this article was that actually I think a lot of GPs think it's all down to this exporting, you know, pharmacists uh, making a quick buck by selling the drugs abroad. And yet actually the evidence for that is pretty pretty small at the moment. Whilst about 10% of pharmacies do have a wholesaler's dealer's licence, the volumes now that, that go out of the countries are actually quite small because of the changes in the value of the pound and also just the, the changes in the market. And a lot of it seems to come down to the, the complexity of the, of the manufacturing market and the fact that a lot of the production is concentrated in very small number of sites. And if you lose one of those sites for all sorts of reasons, loss of you know, regulatory might be closed down or there might be a problem with the manufacturing site, you immediately and quite quickly get a knock-on effect that that site is out of action and then pressure is put on other sites who can't step up with the volume that would be required to match what's gone from the previous site. So all sorts of issues which are perhaps not what we'd first thought of but actually caused by globalisation of manufacture. I think that was the message I got, was that the globalisation is radically altering now. I mean, I suspect two decades ago, most of the drugs I was using in my general practice were drugs that were made in the UK. Now, actually, probably a very uh, much smaller proportion are. And there may just be one factory somewhere, a huge factory, providing you know, most of the world with certain eye drops or ear drops or something. And they will run, do a run for two or three months and then they'll clean down the whole the machines, have the whole system offline for two or three weeks and then manufacture another set of drops or whatever it might be. Any sort of delay or problems with the machinery, any sort of issue around inspection which closes that factory for a couple of months can have a knock-on effect on the supply of a certain set of drops for months and months to come after.
But if there's one thing that would make a big difference initially, I mean, it won't solve the problem, but we'd be getting real-time feedback on availability, alternative choices, and what you should do. And that's what's still missing. Uh, I agree. And, of course, I think there's a difficulty. There's a reticence, I think, sometimes. The worry, of course, is that would would uh, unscrupulous suppliers use that information to stockpile or something? And you know, and then we get the business where, you know, if, if you get a rumour that there's going to be a... A shortage of baked beans. Everyone goes out and buys baked beans, and of course, you end up with a shortage, even if there wasn't one in the first place. Okay, thank you very much. Um, to read these and any of our articles, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments, criticisms, suggestions, please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much. <laughs>